0: Good morning. My name is uh, Frank Pugh. If you don't know me, I'm one of the ruling elders here. Uh, And uh, our pastors, uh, one of them is on sabbatical, the other is on vacation. And I was the only one that wore a tie this morning, so I get to preach. (laughs) Um, You know, I've seen a lot of preachers pull out their watches, and lay it here. You know what this means when a preacher puts his watch out on the table like that? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Our, uh, we'll be preaching this morning uh, on Psalm 73. It's a psalm uh, about that uh, starts with a st- statement of truth and faith, devolves to a period of doubt, and then... Finally, another expression of faith and grace. So, uh, let's pray this morning. Let me pray for us this morning uh, before we get started. Thank you, Father God, for your word, that it is truth and life to us. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit, which inspired this word, would guide me in all that is done and said here and would work in the hearts of the listeners. In Jesus' name, Amen. So I want to start this morning uh, with a little story of my own testimony. Um, I don't usually do this; uh, it's not my uh, story of how I came to faith, but it is a story of a, of a um, a bump in the road or a story of. Of a, of a life crisis that I had when I was a younger man. Um, I was uh, 27 years old. Uh, and I'm telling you this in some part way. There is a point here that ties in with the sermon, but it's also a way for you to get to know me a little bit. And sometimes over the course of many years in a congregation, uh, we don't always know each other's background and know where we've been in our faith journey. So I was uh, 27. Uh, I was um, uh, a young attorney, not not too long out of law school. I was practicing with a small firm in uh, Falls Church uh, that was kind of getting its bearings too. Uh, I uh, I was in a church, I was in a PCUSA church in Alexandria. I had not grown up in the Presbyterian church and was not acquainted with the means of grace or the doctrines of Reformed theology at all. Uh, It was not part of my background, and when I was at this PCUSA church, it was a very good evangelical church, but they didn't teach... Reformed theology either, and I became an elder there without ever knowing or having heard anything about Reformed theology. Uh, I was, um, my mother uh, at this point in her life was going through a serious crisis with alcohol such that um, it wasn't clear that she was going to make it. and I was a, had had an off-and-on relationship with a young lady uh, that I was, uh, had, had been dating, not dating, and we were good, very good at miscommunication. Um, and in the middle uh, of, of these things swirling, uh, my church began to have a crisis. It was a crisis uh, in, in, its, in the denomination with PCUSA. You could see it coming for years. Uh, and it, believe it or not, it was over homosexuality. And this was 30, uh, 35 years ago. You know, that how to minister to uh, gay people was an issue. It was um, the... Uh, my mother's health issues were coming to a crisis. We couldn't find uh, any treatment center that would take a sixty nine year old woman. and uh, my uh, my job was falling apart. The law firm that I was with had hit a crisis, a crisis of integrity uh, but that was a business a business client. Uh, that our major, our one major client uh, had got itself into some ethical issues and that drug down my, our, our name partner. And it began to seriously look like that the law firm was going to implode. And, uh, but all of these things kind of came to a head at once. Now, I told you that to tell you this. About six months prior to this, this young lady that I had uh, off and on been dating took me to a conference or a speaking engagement by R.C. Sproul at, um, I think it was at uh, Columbia Baptist Church in Falls Church, and he spoke. It was the first time I had ever heard of the doctrines of grace the first time I had ever heard about a teaching on predestination where they really meant it, that God uh, predestined uh, our, our lives that I, and that God predestined our souls. And I had a reaction to that. That was, that was not for me. That, was God, that, that God was, oh yeah, God was sovereign, but not like that. Couldn't be. Well, when I hit this crisis in the spring of 1987, all of this stuff came crashing down in one week. The church had a vote, and it split. I won't go into the details. The uh, uh, my mother was spiraling. And it looked like uh, you know I was the job was it wasn't just my job that was an issue there was tens of thousands of dollars of of, in, of investments of people that i could see were going down going down the drain and in the midst of that crisis i needed something to hang on to and what i found was what i had rejected the sovereignty of God. I needed that truth. And I realized that it didn't matter whether my mother lived or not, God was still gonna be on his throne and he loved his people. My church may have imploded, it may split, but God was still on his throne And he loved his people. Uh, My uh, job may be gone and people may go to jail over what had happened. But God was still on his throne. And he was merciful. And whether or not I ended up in a relationship with this young lady, well, God was still on his throne. And he was merciful. And he was sovereign. I needed, again, that truth to hang on to. And in times of crisis, we need God's truth. We need those things that we know that are true to hang on to, to grasp on to in those times of crisis. So the church did split, and uh, we ended up starting a new church with about 90% of the congregation, and we left a building behind. The uh, My mother recovered by the grace of God. Her sister found her at a rehab treatment place in Texas. Um, my job in the law firm was very much up in the air for another year or more. Um, and the young lady that I had been dating is now sitting over here. But God resolved all of those things, and he used it in a way to change my heart and change my thoughts and my mind about the doctrines of grace and about God's sovereignty. Sometimes, many times, most of the time, we need a tent peg to be driven into the ground of our faith. That we may latch on to that and that the winds that blow, we would still be anchored in our faith. And that brings us to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 was written by Asaph according to the the head note, the first line, uh, he was David's chief musician, and so we're, so we're along a line of his sons thereafter. Now we'll read Psalm 73 as we go along, and we'll just start simply with the first verse. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So this is that statement of faith that the psalmist is going to hang on to and hold on to as he goes through a crisis. There are often beginning statements in Scripture that state a truth about God at the beginning of a thought or a beginning of a concept. In fact, we see this in Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God we start with the concept that there is a god and that sets the tone for the bible itself thereafter we see creation we see fall we see redemption and we see glory but it all starts with that point of in the beginning god psalm the psalms themselves start in psalm 1 Uh, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That sets the tone for the whole book of Psalms. And in uh, in John chapter 1, again, we see, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That is the theme for the whole book of of John and the the gospel of John. It sets the tone. And here in Psalm 73, we see again that God is truly good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a statement that sets a background and a tone for this whole psalm. Calvin says that this is not just some mere assertion, but an aggressive declaration to contrast to the doubts that he's going to express in the coming verses. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5.8 about the pure in heart. The pure and blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So we find these foundational truths throughout Scripture. God is sovereign. God is holy, God is good, God loves his people, God keeps his covenant, God is omniscient, God is just, and many, many more that are, can be serve as anchors which hold us when troubles come, especially when we are tempted to sin or despair. And we'll be singing later, On Christ the solid rock I stand. And Jesus taught, He who hears my words, keeps my words, is like the man who builds his house on a rock. So These propositional statements should lead us to complete confidence of God. But we need to learn these principles during the calms of life so that when we hit the storms of life, they are there for us. We've been studying Job, and I'll refer to Job throughout the sermon here today. We saw Job have basically a tsunami in his life, and it spurred a long season of doubt. We might not be able to reconcile all of God's actions with these characteristics, but faith calls us to believe that they are reconcilable, according to Matthew Henry. Belief in faith does not always equal complete understanding. But the just shall live by faith. And so, in the meantime, comes the psalmist's period of doubt. And this comes to us, we'll read verses 2 through 13. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them in a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in their riches." On what was it that the psalmist's foot almost slipped? On what did he almost stumble? Well, he tells us it was the sin of envy. This uh, I envied the arrogant, he says in verse three. The sense of this almost slip shook his sense of security. Job stum- stumbled over the question of why do bad things happen to good people? The psalmist here stumbles over the question of why do good things happen to bad people? The preacher in Ecclesiastes says, there is a vanity which takes place on the earth, that the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this is vanity. Of all the Ten Commandments, we seem to talk least about the Tenth, coveting. Yet it is a common thread to almost all of the other commandments. Envy is the sin of our thoughts. The psalmist dwells on this vivid description of how these uh, evil people behaved and believed. They seem to not have a care in the world. Even when these people die, they, don't, they do so quickly and without the pangs of death. They seem, uh, they have, their pride is a prominent adornment, a necklace or a robe. Calvin says that pride is the mother of all violence. Pride is so prominent that figuratively, and if they had eaten a lot, literally, That makes their eyes bulge out. They are lavish both on the inside and the out. They have succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. They are extravagant, and like Jim Croce's bad, bad Leroy Brown, he flashes their diamond rings under everybody's nose. And the proud use their influence too. They've gained places of power, and they now wield it to oppress. They look down their noses at the peons on whom they dominate. In Loudoun County, it is easy to envy and to be envied. We've said sometimes before, we are the richest county and the richest country in the history of the world. And people envy us, and we envy people. There's always somebody with a little bit more. Or something else that we don't have. We live in proximity to Washington, D.C., the most powerful city in the most powerful country in the world. We look at envy at those who have more material possessions. We are looking only at the surface. We start comparing ourselves with the surface level, it leads to a vicious cycle of frustration and self pity. An entirely surface view is a misconception of the wicked a merely rational perspective that fails to see real reality and true truth. So how does this envy affect us? Proverbs speaks to this. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. This is a physiological effect of the spiritual issue of envy and discontentment. Proverbs again, fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of the evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass, and wither like the green herb. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over those who oppress, over the one who prospers in his ways, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and and forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves. It only leads to evil. But our psalmist got caught up in envy nonetheless. It affected his spiritual life, and it raised challenges to his faith. And you see that in verses 13 to 16. All in vain I have kept my heart clean, washed my, and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it just seemed a wearisome task. So how does that affect me? How does this envy affect me? There is a temptation to quarrel with the providence of God, says Matthew Henry. There's this temptation here to quit the spiritual life. There's this despair when comparing the continual, unabated, apparent prosperity of the wicked versus the continual self-denial and cross-bearing suffering of believers. This is temptation to think, how does God know and why should I even bother? If the wicked are going to prosper, what use is is it to try to behave, to do good, to follow God, who appears to be asleep? I mean, after all, I get nothing but rebuke and persecution all day long. This Man was a, had a hand to the plow, and he looked back. Job also started down that road to, to despair in the same way. I am, in Job 12, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I called to God, and he answered me. And a just and blameless man, I am a laughingstock. In the, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure and bring their God in their hand. The psalmist realizes that this is not a good thing, and he realizes that I really shouldn't talk about this, or I will spread my doubt and let it affect others. And so modern psychology says, express your emotions, Don't let it be bottled up, but venting often validates and retrenches. Most of all, venting can affect others. And the psalmist realizes, boy, I'm glad I didn't vent my doubts. Let me tell you another little family story. Years ago, we took a little family trip one weekend. Uh, to a family reunion in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. And as we often do on weekends, we try to find a place to worship. Um, and that particular Sunday, we couldn't figure out where a Reformed church was, so we went to the little Methodist church on the town square. And there was a, a woman preacher who uh, got up to, to make, even in the announcements she made the announcement that she was going through a period of doubt in her life. Well, that was an honest statement in one regard, but she also made it clear that she was going to just push her doubts, and maybe everybody else should be doubting too. And uh, fairly early on in the service, there was the time for the children to come down, and she even pushed her doubts on to the little children. And she's talked about it. Don't you get scared when you go to bed at night and it's all dark in there? And one little three-year-old boy piped up and says, no, God is in there. And all of a sudden, this lady was taken aback. The little boy had expressed a faith that she didn't have. At least then, and it undercut everything that she said. From that on, that point on, that little boy's words echoed throughout the congregation for the rest of the service. She had gone. She had not learned the lesson that the psalmist did—that she shouldn't be talking about her doubts like that. Maybe the better way to put it is. When in doubt, shut up. Job said, when he finally confessed, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Well, finally, our psalmist hits a turning point, and that's verse 17. I despaired, verse 16, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned the end of the wicked. Why did it take so long to get to verse 17? Why do we keep going back and living our lives in verses two through 16. And what happened in the sanctuary? What happens when you come to the place where God has ordained his worship? We're here this morning. We've already seen God's name is praised. God's people are gathered. Prayer is offered. The word of God is preached. The sacraments are faithfully observed. And in some cases, church discipline is faithfully exercised. That's what happens in the house of God. And all of a sudden, viewing things from God's sanctuary brought a whole new perspective to the psalmist. It is, if you will, another world view. It is the lamp of God's word which has been turned on in the sanctuary and has it is brought to bear to illumine, to bring perspective. This is not a mere emotional experience, although it could involve emotions, certainly, but it is a new understanding. It is a change of heart. In the sanctuary, the psalmist meets God and now understands how to think about his situation and the people that he has encountered. He thinks about things differently. Job thought differently once he had that face-to-face encounter with God. Paul thought differently when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Thomas thought differently when he encountered the risen Christ. Everyone thinks differently when they meet God, when they encounter the Lord. We look at the same people, the same set of facts, and we come to a different conclusion. We see things as they really are from the perspective of God's Word and not from our circumstances and emotions that can blind us. To be sure, we still do not not see everything perfectly and often through a glass dimly, but we see things with spiritual eyes and spiritual eyes are needed to see spiritual reality. And that's really what is more real than what meets our physical eyes. Real reality and true truth, as Francis Schaeffer put it. And though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And so this leads the psalmist now to a time of reflection and understanding, verses 18 to 22. Truly, you set them, the wicked, in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was a beast toward you. So what did the psalmist see when his spiritual eyes were opened? He saw their end. He saw the end of the wicked. He saw the end of the story for all those he had envied. God had put their feet in a slippery place, not his. Initially, that was the, doub- the, the doubting, put the psalmist in the slippery place. But it, it is God who puts an end to everyone who is unfaithful, as we'll see in verse 27. The psalmist sees that God is just after all, but he might need to wait and see it. Yet, from our perspective, it often seems as though God is asleep and permits evil to run amok, withholding his restraining power. And doubts arise when we leave the spiritual view behind, slipping back into rational thinking when the waves threaten us, just like Peter walking on the sea. When we've been away from the Word, when we've been away from God's sanctuary, when we've been away from God's people, when we we have been away from God. The psalmist also understands himself better, and that leads him to repentance. There was real sin in his formal attitude, he realizes. All this self-focus, self-love, self-hate, self-pity, self-awareness, all the focused maybe really just made him self-centered. In the sanctuary of God, however, we are driven to be God-centered. Only then can we have a proper perspective on ourselves. Bitterness, in verse 21, anger at God can blind us and cloud our thinking and even turn us into brutes. We start thinking about God all, all wrong and we blame him. We are even tempted to lose sight of those fundamentals, the fundamentals of God's character that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, including the fact that God loves us. Those are the thoughts that should be anchoring us. But a return to the sanctuary with all its benefits enables us to see our hearts more clearly. We see our hearts have deceived us and have even misled us. And then the psalmist begins a statement of faith. We did this in our prayer. This, we read this as our opening prayer this morning, beginning in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, though you will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works." The psalmist realizes that the psalmist's bitterness and anger are replaced by God's guiding hand and strength. He realizes that God's hand is restraining him all along. Perhaps this is why he didn't fully fall down, that God's hand was holding him all the way. Like a parent who is holding a child by the hand crossing a busy street, he won't let him go. He won't let him slip into the traffic. God's restraining grace was at work in this man's life even while he was treating God like a beast. The great, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord will uphold him by his hand, Psalm 37 says. The grace of God is a, perse- is a preserving grace. It leads us through life. It leads us to be received into glory. Frank Wong closes, uh, has a benediction every time he preaches. I don't know if you've noticed this. He reads from Jude 1 every time. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present yourself blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. This is very unlike the, the other great religions of the world. There is nothing particularly relational with Allah and there's certainly nothing relational with Buddha there is uh, none of these will none of these will take you by the hand. you see how personal this is that God would take us by the hand and lead us none of those will guide you with their counsel or receive you into Glory But our God is personal. He who did not spare his own son but gave us up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? The psalmist learns that he has to love God for who he is, not because of what he gives or does. God changes our desires. Notice, Nothing on earth is desirable any longer for the psalmist. Wasn't that what got him in trouble in the first place? Wasn't he desiring the things of this world and that other people had? Now the psalmist is fully satisfied with the grace of God. This is my portion. This is my share of of an inheritance as a child of God. He is now beginning to know what it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Whereas he had been frustrated at the prospect of living a godly life while others prospered, now he is finding that godliness with contentment is great gain. All this in heaven too. The Old Testament speaks very little of heaven, but here it is in bold print in verse 24. There is laid up for us a crown of righteousness. A culminating glory is ours in due course. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This goes back to the beginning of the first verse, isn't it? God is good. And the key here is the proximity to God. We see in verse 27 what happens to those who are far away, and in verse 28, those who are near. Lo and behold, it's a binary world after all. With this view and this perspective, the psalmist sees how things are going to work out for the unjust and the unfaithful, those who are far from him. God's justice is vindicated and enacted, but in God's timetable and in his way. And he also sees how things turn out for those who are near to God. And thus we are called into God's presence, both here in this sanctuary, in this life, and into eternal glory. Let me give you a final illustration. How did Jesus deal? with someone who went through doubts. We can see this illustrated in the story of John the Baptist in Luke 7. I won't read that passage, but you you may be familiar with the story of John the Baptist who started having doubts when he was in prison. John the Baptist at the beginning of his ministry had proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he, was, he would judge the world. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he, as John echoed the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. But after Jesus comes on the stage, John knows that his ministry must diminish. And not only does John's son set, but John gets sent to prison by an evil King Herod. And while John is languishing in prison, Doubts creep in. Jesus is not going about this Messiah business as John had expected. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you really the Christ? Or do we need to keep waiting? After all, Herod the wicked is still thriving. The Romans are still in power. Where is your winnowing fork? He might have said. And if he had really been cynical which I don't think he was, he might have said, if you're the Messiah, why am I here in jail and Herod's still having parties? But John's attitude is still one of faith. He is not focused on himself. He continues to express faith in God's promises, and he asks in the plural. He's asking also on behalf of his disciples. So Jesus sends back his answer. Take a look around, John. See what's happening. The prophets, especially Isaiah 61, foretell of the Messiah's good works being done in a proclamation of the gospel. And with that, he assured John's faith. Maybe, John, your expectations of my immediate mission and the timing of my work are off, but that does not change who I am what I will do. And of course, the footnote, Herod, eventually, was. we read in Acts 12, was, uh, God sent an angel to strike Herod. And he got, developed worms, and died an ignominious and probably painful death. So there, John, there's your Herod problem. But John didn't live to see that. But he trusted God nonetheless. So what about your doubts? Have you been a beast toward God? When you envied others, when you blamed God for not acting in the time and manner you thought served the ends of justice? Have you been bitter about the way that things have turned out or haven't worked out for you or others that you've loved? Does your flesh and your heart fail? Some of you have grown up in the church, maybe even this church, and have been tempted to doubt like the psalmist in Psalm 73. Some of you may have gone beyond mere doubt and into active disobedience and rebellion at what you've learned. If so, Psalm 73 is still for you. And Psalm 107 is even more for you. I'm not going to read Psalm 107, but it is filled with stories of people who sinned, who rebelled, who lost their way, and eventually found the grace of God and a restored relationship with him. Church, God's family room door is open to you. Leave your doubts, leave your envy, forsake and repent of your sin, and come into God's sanctuary. Recall that God is indeed good to his people. Cling to those things that you know to be true about God because Christ has prepared a place for us. And if it were not true, he would have told us. And therein lies our hope, our confidence in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. It is is the thing, it is the one thing, that our spiraling world today cannot offer, is hope. But we have that in Christ. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Let's pray. Father God, we need your hand. We need your hand of grace We need need your your hand of faith. Teach us all things, Lord. Give us grace for living these days. Give us hope and peace. Give us, we pray, Father, we confess that we have been a beast toward you at times. Lord, come to us. Hold us by the hand. Strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.